0: Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor at large for LARB, and I'm joined remotely today by my co host, LARB's managing editor Medea Ocher, and LARB's gender and sexuality editor, Eric Newman.
1: Hi, Kate. Hi,
0: Hi guys. Kate. I feel closer to you because we're zooming.
1: I know, it's so nice.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's much I- better to see each other. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's been it's been hard. It's- Staring into the blankness these last few weeks. So it's nice to be in person. Or I mean, not in person. You know what I'm saying.
1: We do. Um, <laughs> we're with you. Yeah.
0: The, the closest we're going to get these days. And uh, this week we have a great show. And we're, first we're going to be talking to Dirk Daner and Sharp, who are the president and vice president, respectively, of the Tom of Finland Foundation. And to celebrate Tom, what would have been Tom of Finland's 100th birthday.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, I was just going to ask you guys, what is your relationship to Tom of Finland's work? When do you remember first seeing it?
1: Well, Kate probably has a much more cool art answer to this, but it's like my first encounter with Tom of Finland was definitely in college. And I remember seeing, I didn't know who he was, but I saw prints of his work at, at a gay bar Mm. And I remember thinking like, oh, that is like a a really, and they're, they're campy. Anybody that's seen them, and if you haven't seen them, you should Google them, maybe when you're not at work. But like, they're very campy and funny, but also really sensual and cruisy. And so I remember it really caught my eye at that gay bar, which I'm forgetting the name of now. I tried to look it up, and that took me on a whole weird rabbit hole. But eventually I did find Tom of Finland. And yeah, then I've kind of always loved looking at his work ever since.
0: Wow. And that's funny because I wrote a story that was kind of about Tom of Finland and kind of about Wikipedia that never ended up um, seeing the light of day. And so that's how Mm. I got introduced to them went to Tom. But um, as I remember, Dirk, who's the president has a similar story about how he was introduced to Tom, which was that he saw his image first in a bar. Oh, um, interesting. Searching for it. So he was so, so captivated. So yeah, the art does speak loudly and powerfully and uh, a lifelong devotee, I guess. And our
2: second guest is Rachel Mason,
0: who just had a
2: documentary come out on Netflix and it's called Circus of Books. And Circus of Books is a, I don't know, I would say an iconic gay and hardcore porn bookstore in Los Angeles. What's your relationship to Circus of Books?
1: What I love about putting these two interviews together is actually how they give us a little time capsule of queer LA, right? So Circus of Books is this kind of very, a now closed gay landmark in Los Angeles. And Tom of Finland Foundation is actually celebrating like a kind of almost global history of gay art here in Los Angeles as well. So I love both of these institutions, you know, obviously one of them closed, but yeah, I just, I
3: love it.
2: Great, let's get to those conversations. So we have two special guests with us today. May 8th would have been the 100th birthday of Tom of of Finland fame. And we have two of the people who run the Tom of Finland Foundation in Los Angeles. We have Sharp with us today. He's the vice president of the Tom of Finland Foundation. And Dirk Dayner, who's the president and the co-founder of the Tom of Finland Foundation in L.A. I'll give a brief introduction to what Tom of Finland is for those listeners who might not be familiar. Tom of Finland, it was the alias for Toko Laksinen. I'm just giving that my best shot. But he was a Finnish artist best known for drawing central homoerotic beefcake art throughout the 1950s and until his death in 1991. Tom of Finland is considered a pioneer in gay erotic illustration and art. And the foundation that you both run is meant to preserve. Erotic art and his legacy. Thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you for having us.
0: Just out of curiosity, you guys, I know the Tom of Finland Foundation in LA is also a place where Tom lived for a month at a time when he would visit California. And you guys both live there. And it's also, you know, a kind of communal house, if I'm right, you know, where there are various people living there at different times. And I'm just wondering how that's going with social distancing.
4: Yeah, it's a little bit of a problem in that we normally have two artists in residence and they each stay for three months. And so when the epidemic hit, both of those artists returned to their home countries of Germany. And the Czech Republic, yeah. So we're missing that element. Besides all of the people who would come here for events and for tours. There's four of us that are here, so we do have companionship and we still working. It's just that it's when you get used to having so many visitors and so much new blood coming through all the time, you definitely feel deprived, but as everyone does.
1: Can you actually, I would be interested to hear kind of what were your first impressions on meeting Tom and kind of what was he like as a person and what was also unique about him as an artist?
4: Well, the thing, two things. One is as far as a person, he's Finnish and Finns are very humble people, but very stubborn and very sort of matter of fact. And so (laughs) he he was all those things. They also have no problem in being quiet and not chattering. And so he was that. And also he was very good at humor. So he had all of those elements. And in regards to what made him special is that I didn't grow up with his work, but I saw a piece that affected me emotionally. And then very soon after that, I did a public event for him. And they were lined up a long, long line of young men who actually wanted to just physically meet him and tell him how important he was for them in their life and that he really was the developing force that they were looking for as young guys, you know, when they were 12 and developing, and that he was giving them this positive reinforcement that really turned them into being the gay men that they were today.
0: I'm curious, since Tom, just for the last decade of his life, was making these images in a time of AIDS, did that have any effect on his work or did he reflect on that, you know, that? the fantasy he was offering was so at odds. It's like it made a lot of sense during liberation, but during AIDS, it did become probably more fantastical, these images of, you know, just like unfettered sexuality that he was offering. And I wondered if he thought about that or if AIDS changed his imagery at all.
5: Well, you can imagine how he felt as an artist. And he had been creating this utopian world full of, Sexual escapades. And then the plague struck, and the phone calls started coming in. You know, every day somebody else would call and say, Did you know so and so? So you can imagine the enormous impact this had on Tom. He had to think, and he did think, How have I contributed to this? How has this free love, this free sex, all of this, how has this contributed to it? And so it affected him very much. And he had pause to look at his whole practice and how he may have contributed to it. And when AIDS first came out, we knew so little about the infection. It wasn't until later that we learned that it was actually a virus. And when Tom learned it was a virus, he knew he wasn't responsible. His first reaction was to do portraiture He was doing single figures. He dropped out the background. He was taking commissions for people who had lost their lovers and wanted to memorialize them. He was doing condoms and safe sex ads for different organizations. So he reacted very strongly. He was very much a part of the community. And his initial reaction was, I'm just gonna draw people not having sex. But after a while, in retrospective, when we came to know more about the affliction, he said, no, that's not what we need. The images that society had of us were you know, on Time magazine, and we were emaciated and withering and dying in our mother's arms. And Tom said, no, we need strength. We need power. We need the joy of sex. We need the joy of interaction. And so he went back to what he was doing. And said, This is really what we need. This is what's empowering. And so he had many reactions, as you could imagine, he would have had.
2: Right, wow. In that context, how do you, you know, as two people who are working on preserving his legacy, how do you understand his contributions to perhaps art in general, but queer art and gay art in particular?
4: Well, I was hoping earlier on that academia would actually naturally stumble upon him and realize what he had done. But because of where his roots were based in pornography, and that was where he, in many ways, he placed himself so that he would be accessible to those young, developing homosexuals, that they sort of missed him. And he always would say when he'd lecture and things like that, that he wasn't political, he wasn't an activist, but really... He finally admitted when he was lecturing at CalArts around 1990 that right from the beginning, he had the desire inside of himself, even though he said he didn't think about it every day, it was there to see if he could transform, if he could make a difference and see if he could get gays to be proud of who they were and who they love and for straight people to actually give them that freedom so that they could do that and you know he was a hero certainly he would not classify himself that way but for sure he's one of those people because what happened i was part of that generation is that he nurtured us so that when we became young men we were ready for gay liberation we were ready to you know march on washington and fight for rights and fight for medical aids rights And so he really empowered us.
5: And as an artist, not only did he was responding to the stereotyping and the stigma of the homosexual, he was also deliberately responding to what was currently available, which was beefcake. I think his response to beefcake, and I know he deliberately wanted to elevate it. He wanted it to not just be statues on a page of unknown sexuality, He gave his subjects a gaze. They were cruising each other on the streets. There was lust. There was longing. And that wasn't really present in Beefcake. And I think he saw that as a deficiency. And even though his men for publication had to be clothed, they couldn't have any physical contact. So everything that they were doing was through the gaze. All of their interactions. And we knew when we looked at them, they weren't just models or statues but they were homosexuals like we were i think that's what made him so revolutionary as an artist
0: can i ask just in terms of the foundation when exactly did that start and i'd love for you both just to talk about the kind of journey you've had from tom from his imagery being more like focused commercially and now becoming something that's receiving so much attention outside of more commercial products and from academia and in the art world and the trajectory of his career?
5: We have to remember that Tom was an art director in an advertising agency. So he certainly knew his way around propaganda. Uh, (laughs) He he certainly was aware of what messaging he wanted to do. And he discovered that the better he drew, the better he could communicate those messages. He was self-taught and certainly understood what commercial art was, obviously. And it was about him creating a world that he thought was so desirable that we almost started, well, we did, started moving into it. So he's been a commercial artist, and I think by driving himself to become such a fine craftsman, he really was elevating his own message and his technique. So
4: in regards to the foundation and its evolution. So when we first started it, we just had his work that we were archiving. But very soon, as soon as we had done that, our friends who were also artists, they started giving us artwork because they wanted to be remembered and documented in some way. And they felt the best way to do it was to leave us some of their work. And then it just started rolling and people started contributing, and we started collecting hundreds, and then it became thousands of other artists' works. And so now the foundation has several thousands of works of art by hundreds of artists. And then we have the Toma Finland collection. He's sort of the grandfather, and we have the artists in residence, and then we have the emerging artist competitions. And so we have all this programming. That's about nurturing erotic art. And why erotic art? That's what people ask me. And it's because it's about freedom. It's about freedom and not walls. So that it can be subtle. It can be explicit. It's about the intent. But it's also about the freedom. And the one thing I... I, have to get into this interview is that we've just recently been doing a couple of articles and we've invited some artists to actually comment on tom and how he influenced them and without a doubt they all had one thing that they said in common and that was that it was about the freedom that he did not compromise that he actually drew what he wanted to draw you know, whatever consequences that would take, he would accept. You know, there's a woman in Paris, her name is Rochelle Laurent, and this is some years back, but she was glowing at one of our openings. And I asked her why she was glowing so much. And she said to me, here stands the works of a man who did not inhibit what was in his heart. And he represents freedom for all of us.
0: That's amazing. And just For the two of you personally, what is the journey of acquiring all this artwork and preserving Tom's legacy? I mean, how has that affected your life?
5: I think for me, and I certainly think for Dirk, is how people respond to it. That when people come here to visit, for some, it's a pilgrimage. I think it's important for everyone to have an opportunity to say thank you to Tom. And for some, it's very personal they were given a role model that they never knew even existed. And they're very appreciative of that. And I certainly know it affected Dirk. Yeah, I mean,
4: the thing is that when you get to experience being at an exhibition where people are actually, you know, studying his work and that the exhibition is, and every exhibition that we have done has been extremely well attended. And he doesn't get old in the sense of, oh, I've seen that, done that. Because there's something about his work that is embedded in it. The house, you know, this house has been a center since 1984 when we set it up as a foundation. I mean, people were coming and there were salons, nights in that year then. But what now is that people come here and they just, they don't want to leave <laughs> because... <laughs> the energy and the feeling of the house because it's embedded with erotic art and it's inside and we have beautiful gardens and they can hang out and of course our events are very very pleasurable as they should be because pleasure is really a key point in this in that art if it can produce pleasure pleasure in viewing pleasure in indulging in it that's where success is and so All of these years, the driving force has been passion. And luckily, Sharp, who is my significant other, he came on some years, quite a few years back, and really engaged and took it on as his own, which is very, that's not a common thing to see happen with a relationship. But we both get to validate that passion that people come because they, they are so pleased to be here.
1: It often strikes me that like Tom's work is both very much of its time, but also timeless. I think there's a way that it often gets read as, oh, it's about leather daddies and sailors and butch identity and that sort of thing. But I think that, as you were talking about earlier... It's so playful and different. And there's a kind of interesting, yes, they are all big, muscly guys, but they're also playing with femininity in interesting ways. They're playing in a way with their own butchness. And so I'm interested in how you think about the complexity of Tom's aesthetic and the way that he renders gay sensuality in a number of different ways. And also how you see that connecting to kind of the new generation's that come to the museum or kind of that discover Tom's work for the first time and sometimes even out of that historical context?
4: I feel like you answered your own question so <laughs> eloquently <laughs> that there's very little I could actually add to it. But what I will tell you is this, is that no matter who the visitor is or the viewer, whether they be lesbian, women, trans people, in that they come and they find within his work material, whether it's from a self-identity level, whether it's from a sense of freedom and happiness and lightness, I think that really what Tom brings to the table is joy. And that really is everlasting. And it seems to be, I promised him that I would keep his work out in the popular culture and that his work would do the rest. And that has been true to form.
5: I mean, they may have big things here and there, but what's the big. <laughs> that's one way to put it. A big appendage. They may have big things, but the biggest thing on them is their smiles. And I think that's what brings people in. Some things, some size, some things could be intimidating, but when you see their faces and the joy and their smiles, I think that breaks a barrier. And you know, the thing is that he broke the barrier and
4: he sort of thought of as the grandfather because he took and gave homosexuals of my generation role models, archetypes, Mm. that we were not being given by our own society. And he definitely made them homosexual so that we could self-identify. Definitely in his works, they can camp it up also. So it wasn't about replacing, it was about adding.
5: He lived in an era and he was also creating an era. So that was sort of phenomenal that he was part of the creation and he was also chronicling it and creating it. I love that. Thank you. I don't
4: know where you are, but at some point I hope all three of you will come and
5: pay a visit. Oh yeah. Yes. I know that we would love that. We're all in LA luckily. And Kate can give you a tour. (laughs)
0: Yeah. yeah, I've been there. It's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much.
5: Our pleasure. Thank you. Uh,
0: We're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded remotely. We've been speaking with Dirk Daner and Sharp of the Tama Finland Foundation. We now turn to our interview with Rachel Mason, director of the movie Circus of Books.
2: Our guest today is Rachel Mason, whose recent documentary is called Circus of Books. Circus of Books was a gay bookstore and porn shop in Los Angeles, and it was run by Rachel's parents, Karen and Barry Mason. Karen and Barry took over the bookstore in 1976 and ran it for 30 years. They eventually had two locations in Los Angeles, and at one point were the largest distributors of gay porn in the nation. They also produced their own gay adult videos. The Circus of Bookstores closed down in February of 2019, is a a loss for Los Angeles, I think. And um, Rachel's documentary focuses on how her parents ran the business, their run-ins with the law and the obscenity trials, and their involvement with the LGBTQ community here. Thank you so much for joining us, Rachel.
3: Well, thanks so much for having me and for that awesome introduction. I think clearly said it all.
0: (laughs) So Rachel, what did you think your parents did as you were growing up? And about what point did you learn the true nature of um, what Circus of Books was?
3: Well, I really just thought they had a bookstore and I thought that it had a funny, (laughs) great name. And it bothered me only to the effect that I uh, wished I could have said the name to my friends and teachers, cause they would ask, well, Oh, your parents own a bookstore. Well, what's the name of it? And I was under very strict instructions to never say the name of it. And I <laughs> guess, you know, when you're a child, you don't, you sort of don't question a, a, a base level of rules, I guess, you know, like don't stick your hand in the fire. Okay. Why? You'll get burned. I mean, don't say the name of the store. Well, Why? Because you can't do that. You know, it's just something that like was like that. Um, so I, you know, I remember feeling like, uh, you know, I would have liked to say the name of the store, but I didn't have um, any greater depth of perception beyond that. But in high school, you know, I was totally part of the counterculture. Like the minute I discovered zines and John Waters and anything that was weird and gay, like freaky and outsider, that was, you know, those were my people, my friends. And I, just you know, adored these group of really maverick kids, and you see some of them in the footage that I amazingly was shooting in high school in and, and my at Cleveland high school in Reseda. and my friends were taking trips to you know from the valley to L.A. It's like wow, we were driving into L.A. They would say you know, and I lived over on the other side, and so they all thought I was super cool, and I remember just one of you know they, them asking about my parents and. I said, well, they have own this store called Circus of Books. And they all were like, what? That's our favorite store. That's a porno store. That's the store we go to. We like make a special trip to. It. And I just thought, wow, my friends who are so cool, like, you know, how is that even possible? It really didn't equate because my parents were very square. You know, they were like from the 50s. My mom was so religious. You know, she just really, my upbringing was dominated by her, you know, biblical really heavy-handed authoritarian parenting style. It was not like my friends who had cool parents. <laughs> I really did have friends with much more cool parents than mine. So it was shocking to me that they my parents were actually in this business.
0: Let me jump in, Rachel, and ask a little bit, you know, about the nature of, of what your parents did at the store and just a little bit of its history. So they they took it over in the seventies and they Tell us just a little bit about the kind of, you know, what exact, I mean, you don't have to get into the exact specific uh, brands of porn, but what was the extent of their inventory? And also, you know, the first store was in West Hollywood. So that's a very specific milieu at the time and a very concentrated gay population. So kind of like, what were they selling and who were their clientele? And maybe you could also talk about their foray into porn making.
3: In the course of doing the interviews for this film, it was just basically a constant. Man, and I will say that gay men. I'm, I'm really being very specific to gay men in the telling of the store. And um, there were transgender people that worked there, and there were um lesbians in the environment as well. Um, my parents employed people who were all across the LGBTQ spectrum. But the place of its biggest audience and it's the most significant audience and customer base were gay men. And in the course of interviewing these people for my film who were primarily over 50, you know, these men would tell me stories of just how critical the store was to them in ways that I don't think I could have really imagined. And I also don't think the world fully understands that, you know, um, they would talk about it with tears in their eyes it was very much a constant they would actually say you know if i didn't know i could have a place like this to see the reality of something that was just in my mind as a sexual perversion or a fantasy that was you know really disgusting and it was made fun of and i was you know i was the outcast of my you know community wherever i came from and this store just gave me a place where i could feel like i actually was not a total disgusting outsider. Um, So it was like this shocking statement that they would say to me because I grew up in the nineties where, you know, it was still okay to be, you know, called a faggot in my school that I had plenty of friends that had bad experiences, but on, on such a different level, I mean, on such a different level of pain. And so when I experienced these people telling me what they said that the store meant, You know, my child's perspective on it was I saw my parents on a day to day basis running in and out and just doing, you know, really like chicken with their head cut off, having to carry boxes, having to, you know, put stickers on products. I mean, it was really not glamorous, not interesting work. And it was very repetitive and dull. But looking at what that environment was and knowing that there was no other place in our society for this environment that they created that's what I only came to understand in the making of the film and also through my own experience talking to people in life. Um, as many of my friends are in the demographic that, you know, are obviously I'm very much in the gay community and the LGBT space, but I am generationally 20 to 30 years separated from the people that really needed that store. Like it was a lifeline. Um, and so, the community that needed that store really truly needed it, and it wasn't um it wasn't a joke, and it wasn't something that my generation just kind of loved it and thought it was really cool. There was a whole different necessity for that store for the people who um are probably now in their seventies
0: yeah and um something I you know especially now watching the documentary of course you know, there's this poignancy because the store ultimately closed because so much of the business uh, of gay pornography has moved online. And I wonder for you and and for your parents, what that means kind of in light of, of the present situation when people can't even go into a bookstore, you know, have you been thinking of of it in any different way uh, through the pandemic or through the lens of pan- the pandemic and, and what you kind of see as the future of, uh, like, gay community? Are meeting spaces like Circus of Books important?
3: Well, yeah. I mean, I think that's sort of the big, um, the painful side of the story is that I think there's two realities that exist for the gay community. And I think, you know, I like to say... Gay history and gay culture, because right now we say LGBT and we include everybody in it. And it's very also very fraught sometimes and people get mad at each other. But I think when I look back on the era that really was foundational, the story of this store, it started in the 60s there was, I mean, the the idea of a gay community was barely a thing. And then 70s, you know, you you had um, cultural liberation movements and then 80s and 90s. And here we are today where we have sort of every single niche community imaginable has an Instagram account and is on Twitter fighting with each other. And I really feel like there's a nostalgia for that unity that came probably because of the circumstances that were terrible and horrible. And we would never want to go back to those certain circumstances. But at the same time, the nostalgia is for an incredible wealth of cultural symbols. You know, when you look at gay dance culture, you know, there's this thing, there's, there's flagging and bandanas, you know, men sharing these different coded sexual preferences through the use of colored bandanas and my parents store sold them and you know i remember just all these different things you encounter because it's a secret society and there's nothing more fascinating and interesting and we are totally losing those things because we have all these freedoms now and these rights but not only that we also have these micro niche new societies and new communities and you know um i think there's a great obviously there's nothing but positivity that comes from having more freedoms and not being forced into prison. Um, To me, it was very important to include the footage where you actually see real images of men being carted off in paddy wagons. They were taken out of a gay bar. Those men were thrown in jail. And you hear Alexei Romanov, who's old enough to remember what it was like To be taken out of your life, your entire life, to be outed back then was like a death sentence. You know, some of those men were married with children and had jobs. And as soon as that happened to them, they would lose everything. Their names would be published in the newspaper. I mean, to talk about a scarlet letter, that's what gay people lived through. So the gay community back then were there for each other. They were holding each other. You know, the people that marched, in the early black cat protests were so brave and you look at their faces and they're not smiling in those pictures. And Alexi reminds us, you know, we were scared to protest. We were going to get the shit kicked out of us simply by being on those corners. And, you know, they, they didn't have time to fight and call each other transphobic like we do now. Um, you know, I, I, I say that because um, my, my partner is um, trans and he gets called transphobic. It's like, it's shocking the depth of the kind of micro fight fighting that's happening right now. And to me it breaks my heart because also there's this other thing where, which I see now, um, in younger generation, you know, calling the older generation, okay, boomer, every time they don't agree with something. And it's so maddening to me because I just, you know, the fought, the fight that was fought on behalf of kids. Now my, my age and younger, um, is just I have such reverence for the people who came before me. And so I I just feel like maybe they're not aware of what it was like to lose all your friends to AIDS, which actually happened. And I think that it's so important, and maybe even more so right now when we are all you know really just isolated in this strange way, even though we're isolated and yet we're together online, to remember what it was like for the people that actually had you know, lost everything during the AIDS crisis. And then before that lost everything when it was criminal to be gay. So I just really feel like it's almost my job, not just as a director, but as a person who's truly a part of the community to make sure that gets preserved.
2: So Rachel, speaking of criminality, there's a part in this documentary where you discuss your parents and how they came under FBI investigation for spreading and distributing obscenity there's even a you know a time during which it's possible that they might both go to jail or your father might go to jail. This was kept from the children and I mean surprisingly effectively by your parents who really protected you. but what led your parents to somehow being involved in the obscenity trials of the 80s and how they got
3: out of it? so yeah what led my parents to get involved in the obscenity trials in the well it was actually like around 91 when they were really sucked in deep to um you know an entrapment that happened well Ronald Reagan um was you know he had this entire cabinet that was just so hell-bent on being a moral it was called the moral majority and you know it still exist to this day. You know, you see Mike Pence and the people that are on the Christian right wing that are really the proteges of all those same people, um, that started it up in the late eighties. And, you know, they, they were just trying to stamp out that they deemed countercultural. I think, you know, even the NEA grant was taken away the National Endowment for the Arts because they felt like it was, you know, supporting a homosexual agenda. And, um, if you look at the headlines from back in the day, first off, they're like flat out homophobic and just the things politicians said are shocking by today's standards, but they're also, you know, the way that they pursued the adult entertainment industry was so really outrageous. And I mean, the hypocrisy of it for me, I guess I'm going off topic to answer your question. My parents got, Caught up in it specifically because there was a sting operation that happened in Pennsylvania because there was a attorney general out there who I think was my mom was saying um, he was trying to make a name for himself and what better way to do it if you're a Republican than to say that you're tough on pornography you know it's a really great solid line that helps get votes so he just made an effort to try to get small time pornographers arrested. And, you know, my parents sent three like soft core VHS straight tapes to the middle district of Pennsylvania. You know, if you look at it by today's standards, it's completely laughable, but these three VHS tapes got them caught up in a sting and they were not, you're not allowed to ship to certain areas. And my parents knew about these laws, but they had an employee that really just flat out screwed up and didn't do his due diligence and sent the tapes. And, you know, everyone in the adult industry knew all about this. And that's why everyone was being very cautious. This happened all the time. And my parents knew lots of their colleagues that were in jail. And my parents' own lawyer, you know, looked me in the eye and said, I had no clue that I wasn't going to be able to um, avoid some hard jail time for your parents. They got very lucky but um, a number of political factors just swung in their favor, um, one being that he was able to delay and delay and delay until Clinton got into office, and the resources that were being spent on these ridiculous, in my opinion, operations dried up. You know, there was, but under the Republican administration, they poured a lot of resources into these anti-pornography cases. It was a big deal. You know, kind of just to to
1: wrap up, I'm curious how your parents, through the process of both filming the documentary with you and also then seeing it when it was done, did that give them any kind of different purchase on their own history? Like, was there any way in which, I guess, like something that had been so private was also something now that they were quite proud of now that it was public?
3: So the film was um, just in its rough cut stage. And I did something sort of for a local gay audience. They wanted to see some of the film and I brought my parents in to watch. And it was the first time my mom looked at what I had created and she said, wow, that looks like we were a part of something that was kind of bigger than what we were involved in. And she goes, I, I guess I never realized that we were involved in something that was so much bigger than just, you know, our little, store in our experience here. And I was really blown away that she actually never thought about that until (laughs) that moment she saw that I had, you know, framed their work in this way. And I Mm. think she's she's said it again and again, you know, that when you run a business, you actually do have your head in the sand. You are seriously just day-to-day, invoice-to-invoice, you know, someone's calling you about this, someone's calling you about that. By the time the store was ready to close, it was just, okay, well, who do we need to pay right now in order to get these magazines sent back? And, you know, the bookshelves have to go here. And you're just, you don't have time to look up and think about culture and to think about the community. And, you know, especially if you are like my parents, really, where you are not a part of that culture, they did not see it. They actually couldn't see it. So, I don't know if it's, you know, divine will that I'm the kid that they have who was able to be so embedded into this culture that could say, Hey, you guys actually need to take a look at this, or I'm going to force you to stop for a minute and let you film some of this. Let me film some of this so that I can document it. Cause I know how it's valuable for the wider culture. And, um, you know, it was really lucky that I got in when I did because easily the whole thing could have gone away and no one would have ever noticed.
0: Well, we're well, so glad that you did and um, yeah. thank you so much for talking with us.
3: <laughs> well, thank you and I'm glad that you guys care and I appreciate it very much. So, um, looking forward to hearing the podcast. Thank you thank so you much, so Rachel.
2: Much.
1: You've been listening to the Larb Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley.